0: Thanks, guys. Morning. Morning. Everybody doing good? Are you ready to dig into Genesis? All right. Let's see how we're doing on our uh, memory verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. You're going to have to grapple with that verse for weeks and weeks and weeks because That verse lays the foundation for everything else we're doing in this study of Genesis. So I just want to remind you, when we talk about Genesis 1.1, that God exists, that God created, that God therefore has authority and dominion, that he created man in his image. These are the things that answer the gigantic questions that human beings ask is there a god who is this god uh what is the purpose of life am i special does my life have any meaning and what in the world has gone wrong because everywhere i look there's a mess and is there a solution to what's gone wrong all of those giant questions that everybody's asking are answered for us and the foundation is laid in these first few chapters of genesis So I want us to just grasp this and understand the significance because there are still a number of Christians I've met over the years who basically say, listen, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to heaven and everything, but there's some stuff in the Bible I'm just not sure of, you know, and I just don't know if I really, all this stuff in Genesis, especially that beginning stuff, and I mean, I read in a science book where it's different than what it says in the Bible, and what do I do with that? And, and some of us just go, well, I guess it doesn't matter. It's not that important. What's important is that Jesus loves me. What's important is that uh, I treat my fellow man right, and all that kind of stuff. I want us to really get this if we don't understand and believe Genesis 1-1 and the implications of Genesis 1-1, then pretty much the rest of the Bible goes out the window. This whole book is about this God who created us and what he created us for. And so a lot of us, we, we... Cling to like, we. I, I just love the Psalms. I really love the Psalms. The Psalms encourage me. I, or I love Proverbs because there's so much wisdom in Proverbs. Listen, the Psalms and the Proverbs are dependent upon Genesis 1.1. They have that as their foundation. You say, well, I really love just the New Testament. I like Paul's letters, very practical. Paul claims that has his source of authority, this God who created all of the heavens and the earth and all of the people and therefore has dominion over everything. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, If you read uh, almost anywhere in the New Testament, you're going to find these pictures. So in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 to begin with. Let me just read this. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Maybe just write it down in your notes. We'll get through this real quick because this is just an introduction. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. So the, the, the writer of Hebrews who makes this whole argument for the life of faith says that the basis of his argument is that there is a creator who by his word spoke everything into existence and made out of nothing everything that is. If you go to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, like I said, foundational, go to Psalm 33, or write this down in your notes and look it up later, Psalm 33, beginning in verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. uh, He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So he says to fear the Lord, right? He says we should all stand in awe of God. And what is the basis for his argument that God is worthy of that kind of awe? It is that he spoke all of the universe into creation. That is his claim to fame as the one who is worthy of us fearing him. Right, that's the book of Psalms. But the one I really love is in Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you go to Colossians chapter one, this uh, this is really really interesting. Colossians one verse sixteen. And speaking of Jesus, in fact, let me give you context. Let me give you verse fifteen also. Verse fifteen, for He Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't get confused. When it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It means that he stands in dominance over all of creation. That's the concept of the firstborn, right? And the way that we know for sure that he's not implying that Jesus was created is the following verse, verse 16, For it says, For by him, Jesus... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him And for him, he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. So yes, there is earthly authority. It was created by him. Yes, there are kings. They were given dominion by him. Yes, there is a creation. There is a universe. There are planets and and galaxies, all of those things created by him. When we look at Genesis 1.1, and it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all active in the creation of the universe. So our Bibles and the, and the doctrine that we get from these other passages and from these other books all are relying upon Genesis 1.1. It is essential that we get this. This is why Moses began his big five-book writing by establishing this. There is a God and he created everything. And once we get that straight, so many other false teachings go right out the window, and we have a foundation for everything that we believe and how we go about life. So that's why we're doing this. We want to we lay the foundation for a Christian worldview. We want to lay the foundation for a biblical view of how things really, really are. So the credibility of the rest of scripture depends upon the truth of Genesis 1:1. And last week we looked at the rest of chapter 1 and we saw that man is the crowning achievement of creation. That God created everything, but that on the last day, He created man, and man stands apart from everything else that God created. It says man is created in the image of God. Man is created in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And for that reason, all of human life has dignity, and we went into that in great detail last week. We have value. We have immense worth. God created everything. I don't know if you've had much chance to travel and see the beauty of God's creation. You don't have to go far. <laughs> you could just jump on the freeway and head to Santa Monica and look at the Pacific Ocean. Right? You you could just go up up the coast and go up to Yosemite. And you will stand in awe of the beauty and the grandeur of God's creation as you look at things like Half Dome and El Capitan and Bridal Falls. Spectacular, spectacular beauty. I don't know if you've ever rafted down the Colorado River or or if you've ever stood on the precipice of the Grand Canyon and looked out at just spectacular or if you've ever been on the Kanapali coast of Maui and just went, oh man, it's incredible, right? And all of that is child's play compared to you. God created you, us, and He said, We stand apart from the rest of creation as human beings. We have incredible value. That means, I don't know what your parents told you, but you're not an accident, you're not a mistake your plan before the foundation of the world by the same God who spoke that world into existence. You are a sacred human being, not based upon how beautiful you are, not based upon how smart you are, not based upon how rich you are, or what your uh, age is, or what your gender is, or what your race is, or any of those other kinds of things, but simply based upon the fact that you are a human being. So all of us need to find our dignity and our sense of self in Him, and we need to realize that that same dignity that lies in us, also lies in every other human being, even the ones we don't like so much, even the ones who don't have much power, even the ones who don't have much money, even the ones who don't have much authority. Every one of us, by virtue of being made in the image of God and knit together in our mother's womb by him, has value. We have value because of him. And when God completed his work of creation on that sixth day and man had been created and added to the picture, and we're going to dig into this in chapter two today because what chapter two of Genesis does is it takes everything that we got in chapter one and it zooms in on day six and it shows us some of the detail of what it gave us in generalities in chapter one. But at the end of it, God goes, this is very good. And so we got through six days of creation last week. Today, we're going to focus back in on day six, and we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter two, and we're going to begin in verse one of Genesis chapter two. So just follow along as I read. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work Which God had created and made. Now I'm going to stop there for a second because I I just want to comment because it would be easy for us to misunderstand this early picture where we see God creates for six days and then on the seventh day, what did he do? Right, he rested. He worked all of those first six days, creating, designing, and putting things into place. And he worked for six days. And then, as you could picture this, on the seventh day, God wipes the sweat from his brow and goes, I am exhausted. I need a break. And that's when God created the hammock, right? And he laid in a hammock on that seventh day because he was so exhausted and his energy was all sapped. Is that what the scripture teaches No, don't get confused when it says that God rested from his creative work. It does not mean that God stopped working. It is God's nature to work. And by the way, I don't know if you find this to be good news or bad news, but you made in his image were also created to work. Work is a good thing. It's a part of God's plan for our lives. It's how he created us, right? So God is a working God. In fact, we saw in Colossians that he holds everything together. The whole universe is held together because of God's work. God is active in our lives. God has not taken a day off. He has not taken a week off. He hasn't taken a thousand years off. God is not resting in the way that we think of rest. He is simply no longer creating at the end of the sixth day his design was completed his creation was finished and now it was able to continue from that point point. and so God rested from his creation but our God is all powerful so his power is never diminished so he doesn't need to rest that being said there's an example that he sets for us here isn't it because guess what If you work six days, you need to rest on the seventh day. And there's a reason for that. And I'm going to tell you what it is, and you may not like it, but here it is. You ain't God. Okay? Write that down. You want to get that straight. You're not God. We stand separate from all that God created and separate from God. We're made in the image of God, but that doesn't make us little gods, right? So we are diminished when we work. And we need rest, the other thing is this, God didn't create us primarily for work, he created us primarily for loving relationships. Loving relationship with him, a loving relationship with other people, in fact, a loving relationship with all of creation. And you know, I don't know if this has been true for you, maybe this is true for your spouse, Um, but some of us have a tendency to find our identity in our work. Does that ring true for anybody? Some of us have a tendency to define ourselves in terms of our work. And yet God says, no, no, it's the relationships for which I created you. And when when they came to Jesus and said, boil down the whole law, what did he say? Love God and love people. It's relationships. And what we have a tendency to do is work, 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 and work ourselves out of healthy relationships. And God says, look, you need physical rest. But you also just need time to spend on the things that are most important. It's not all about work. So God gives us this example and he rests on the seventh day. Let's pick it up in uh, verse four. This is the account uh, of the heavens and the earth When they were created, and the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is important. Everything else God created, he created out of nothing. He spoke it and it existed, right? So it says, and, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Actually, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's much more abrupt than that. If you directly translate it from the Hebrew, it says, and God said, let there be light, light. And that's how it was with everything that he created. He said, let there be, he said, let there be, Let there be, it was just there. As he spoke it, it existed. He created everything out of nothing. And then we see the exception on day six, when he creates man not out of nothing. He doesn't speak man into existence the way he did everything else. It says that he used something that he already created to create man. Out of the dust of the earth he creates man and breathes breath into him that he would become a living being or better translation of that verse that he would become a living soul see everything else he created might have life like a plant has life a dog has life a a bird has life but we have a soul God created us to be living souls. There is a spiritual component to our lives that does not exist in anything else he created. We stand alone. We are unique. It is God's breath in us that gives us that spiritual life, right? So human beings have spiritual life that nothing else has. And so he makes us living souls. And man stands apart now from everything in creation. And the scripture tells us later that As man came from dust as a result of the curse, which we'll see in the coming chapters, he also returns to dust. And yet his soul, that breath of God, that spiritual life continues. And we're going to see this unfold right before our eyes in Genesis and as we go through the books of Moses. So I want you to pick this up in verse 15 with me. Um, well, let me, let me just, uh, let me read starting in verse 8 so we don't miss it. Uh, the, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The, second, uh, the name of the second river is Gihon and flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third liver, uh, river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God uh, took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'From any tree of the garden you may eat freely.'" But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now we've been reading along, and this has just been a nice story. It's been going so well. And then we get to this section, beginning in verse 15 to 17, and we just go, why? He, he puts a tree in the middle of the garden And then forbids them access to it. Why? Why mess this up, God? It was going so well. There there was all of this beauty and mankind and creation has begun and man is tending the garden and everything wonderful is happening. Why on earth even should he create the possibility of rebellion? Why would God do that? Why would God give us the choice to either obey him or disobey him, especially if he's actually an all-knowing God, knowing that we're going to disobey him? Why would he do that? He ruined everything. And if you're reading this and you're going, oh, what a great God, oh, what a great God, oh, what a great God, and then you come to this passage and you go, I think I just lost my respect for God. Where's the wisdom in this? Because I'm guessing you've heard the story or read ahead. It doesn't go well as a result of that tree. That tree becomes a real source of trouble. That tree becomes the source, as he says, of death. All of our sin tendencies come as a result of that tree. All of our broken relationships, all of the trouble we have with our thought life, all of our lust, all of our greed, all of our selfishness, it's all tied into that tree. What was God thinking? Why put that tree there? The existence of that tree in the garden is simply a choice not to love It's simply an option to not do things God's way. It's an option not to submit to the lordship of God and instead make ourselves lord and decision maker in our own lives. That's what it is. Listen, don't miss this. Choice is required for love to be real. And God created us for a love relationship with him. That love relationship would be impossible if we had no choice. My wife and I have three kids. Most of you know my kids. They're adults now. And uh, they were once little rugrats running around. And I I just cherish such a great memory those days when they were like, you know, eight, six, and three. And I would just come home at the end of the day And all I would have to do is touch the doorknob, start to step into that house, and those kids would drop whatever they were doing, run from every corner of the place, and go, Daddy, Daddy, and jump on me and hug me, and we'd wrestle and play. And man, it was just like awesome. It was incredible. There's no feeling like going, man, after a hard day, I walk in, and there are people here that love me, and they just come running, right? And it was so great. It would happen every day. And then they became teenagers. (laughs) And I don't know what happened, but suddenly video games were more interesting than dad coming home from work. Suddenly homework was more interesting than dad coming home from work. Suddenly talking to my friends was more interesting than dad coming home from work. I would walk in the house and go, ta-da, crickets. Where are these kids? So I, it broke my heart. So I did something about it. I gathered the kids, we sat them down. I said, listen, here's how it's gonna be. From this point forward, when I come in the house, you will drop what you're doing and you will run and hug me and tell me how much you love me. And if you don't, I'm telling you, I'm taking away your, your electronics. I'm taking away your allowance, right? I'm going to make you sorry. You will come and love me, whether you like it or not. (laughs) No, I didn't do that. (laughs) That would have been a complete waste, right? Because if you make somebody love you, that person doesn't love you, right? Some of us know from experience what it's like to try to make somebody love you. You can't make somebody love you because the minute they act in the way that you're making them act, you know that it's not love. There's something missing there. There's something unfulfilling there. And God did not create robots. Part of being made in the image of God is the choice to love God. And so he gives us That choice, and it exists in the form of that tree, and that tree is going to come back into this story, and it's not going to be pretty. But love that has no choice is not love. So God created us for love, and God gave us a choice. Now, for the verse that makes half the population of the world angry, um, I'd like to skip it, but we're not going to skip it. We're just going to read it, and hopefully no one will throw anything at me, okay? Just give me a second. Verse 18, Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. A helper. You know, like a, an assistant. You know, like a, like a lieutenant. You know, like, yeah, you know, like a servant. <laughs> Don't throw anything. (laughs) I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. It says that he looked at the man who was alone in spite of all the rest of creation and said, I want to make a helper for him. And a lot of women get pretty upset that, that women are somehow relegated to the role of helper. I want to say a couple of things about that. If you're, if you're reading Genesis 2.18 as a woman and you're feeling offended that somehow it paints you as less than, then you have completely 180 degrees missed the point of the verse. Okay, So I want to make sure we get it clear. And the second thing I want to tell you about that is that word helper should not offend you because there's one other in the scripture that is referred to as a helper. You know who it is? God Himself. Right? So don't read into that word helper less than. Don't read into that helper something as that word helper, something that diminishes your dignity or diminishes or means that someone else is superior to you because God Himself calls Himself our helper. And he says that He creates the woman to be the helper or the helpmeet suitable for this man. Now, what I want you to see about this verse is that far from being a knock on women, here's what you have to understand it's saying. It's saying after all of creation, and he says this is good, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good, and he creates man, and he says this is very good. The first thing in all of human history that is ever recorded as being not good is it is not good for man to be alone God looks upon all of his creation and there's Adam in the midst of the garden and God says, something is seriously missing. Something is seriously wrong here. Everything that I created and all the purpose for which I created it simply cannot function and succeed this way. There is one who is needed. And so God creates a woman and the beauty of the creation of the woman is mind-boggling. But but understand if anything god is just saying what all of scripture has said we know this from scripture we know this from history and I, and i know this from personal experience women are far superior at being women and men are far superior at being men. Now, I know that's a hard line to swallow in this day and age when people are saying, well, there really should be no difference between genders and gender is just a state of mind and all that kind of stuff. Guys, I'm gonna try not to get all upset. (laughs) Gender's not a state of mind. Gender is a state of biology, physiology, Gender is a state of physics. Gender is a state of spiritual and emotional being. To be female is entirely different than to be male and vice versa. And if you are of the opinion that somehow there is no difference between men and women, all I can tell you is you have been brainwashed because all of the evidence tells you that there is difference. But let's focus on where there's not difference. Well, there is no difference in dignity. There is no difference in value. There is no difference in significance because there is no difference in the fact that we are made in the image of God. He says so in chapter one. He made them in the image of God, male and female, he made them. Right? So, this discussion about gender is not a meaningless discussion. A lot of our foundational thinking about life and the family and society and what it means to be a human being relates to this issue of male and female gender. And so, our gender is important. God made men to be men and he made women to be women. Now, that does not mean that there are stereotypical roles that men must serve and stereotypical roles that women must serve. There's nothing in Scripture saying that. But it does tell us that he created them different. Now, we're going to see more about that, but let's keep going. Verse 19. uh, Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. Remember, we're getting this recap of chapter 1. And, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name, right? Because God gave man dominion and authority over the rest of creation and therefore the authority to name the animals. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So just picture this. It's so hard for us because everything in our experience is, is post-sin, right? But this is pre-sin. This is what God created before we messed it up. Just imagine the, just the beauty of the garden. Just imagine Adam just laying there in the springtime in the meadow, just eating fruit, and listening to the birds sing and looking over here and there's a beautiful waterfall and the, and the creek runs past him. And, and he's just sitting there in all the beauty with all of the animals running around. And, the, and the, the, it gets to be dusk and the little rabbits go off in this direction. And he, he sees a couple of birds fly into the nest together and he sees animals going off to do what animals do. And he goes, wow, this stinks. (laughs) Because there was not found in all of that anyone suitable for Adam. Not anyone complimentary for Adam. Not anyone. See, the, the bunnies go off and make more bunnies. And Adam goes, I love the rocks and the trees and the animals and all of that, but not like that. (laughs) There's nothing here that's for me. And so God sees this dilemma and addresses it. Verse uh, 20, uh, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Guys, notice this section This was how it was meant to be. This is one of the last pictures we get of life before it all went down the toilet. This is how it was meant to be a man and a woman not competing with each other, a man and a woman not trying to manipulate one another. Man and a woman, no one's trying to use anyone here. A man and a woman not trying to take advantage of one another. And it's important to note how the woman was formed by God, just as it was important to note how the man was formed by God. Everything else is spoken into existence. The man is formed out of the dust, formed, shaped, sculpted, masterpieced by the great artist. And the woman is not made from the dust as the man was, but is made from the man himself. So that the very first thing Adam says about her when he sees her is, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Just picture this. I know this is weird. I know this is hard to picture. Adam just goes to sleep and wakes up With a sore side and a naked girl. This is this is the best day of his life so far. And and he wakes up to this and goes, What is God doing? God has something in mind here. And so he he takes from Adam, from his flesh, from his bone, and shapes his counterpart so that Adam cannot see her as someone who is wholly other than himself. He cannot see her the way he sees a dog or a cat or a bird. He cannot see her the way he sees a tree or a waterfall or a rock. And he cannot see her the way he sees God. He sees her as part of himself, so that when the two of them are together, joined together by God, they become one. And it's this mystical, amazing picture that that we don't seem to be able to get right no matter how hard we try. God brought the two of them together. They were of the same substance. They were never intended to be at odds with one another. For Adam to do anything to hurt Eve... For Eve to do anything to hurt Adam is absolutely illogical. It makes no sense. Even Paul in Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church. You know that section? What what does he say? For whoever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and takes care of it. When Adam saw Eve, he didn't see someone to compete with. He didn't see someone to dominate. He didn't see someone to make a servant out of. He saw someone who was himself and who along with him now reflected the glory of God like nothing else had ever been created. This idea that either the man is superior to the woman or the woman is superior to man cannot be found anywhere in scripture so if you've gotten the idea that somehow that's what the bible teaches you have gotten it wrong adam says this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and look what moses says in his commentary verses 24 and 25 after he tells the story he gives us two verses of commentary about it he says for this reason a man shall leave his father what reason the fact that god created it this way for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is how it was before the fall. This is how it was before we all became selfish. This is how it was, how marriage was created to be. This was his ideal. And, and don't miss, don't, and don't think I'm going to skip over the clear sexual references here, right? It doesn't just say the two became one, it says the two became what? One flesh. He's talking about their flesh. Now, you're all big folks, so I'm not gonna draw pictures for you, but a man's flesh and a woman's flesh were created to fit together as one. This is what God did. The sexual celebration of marriage is intended to be a celebration of oneness. So no wonder so many people's sex lives are so messed up. Because either on the one hand, it's taken completely outside of marriage and people are just doing sexual things together and going, why is this not fulfilling? Why is this not touching my heart in the way that it's supposed to? Or there are people who are married, but they're competing with each other, they're dominating one another, they're using one another, they're mistrusting one another, and they're wondering why their sex life is not just invigorating. See, God created it a certain way. When are we gonna trust him? When are we going to realize that he has a plan for all of this? This is how it was before the fall, before we all messed it up. And I know, chapter 3, the story changes. I know that there's a curse. There's a curse upon the woman. There's a curse upon the serpent. There's a curse upon the man. And there's a curse upon the family. We're going to look at all this in the next couple of weeks. But here's what we need to understand, Christians, because we live today. We don't live in the garden. You may say, well, because of the curse, people mistreat each other. This kind of oneness, not possible because of the curse. Listen carefully. Jesus came to reverse the curse. That's why he came. So we have the opportunity now to have this kind of marriage. We have the opportunity now to have this kind of family, to have this kind of household. It says, they were both naked. You think he makes a point of them being naked for no reason? They were both naked and not ashamed, not an ounce of shame in it. Their whole sexuality without fear, without um, shame, without doubt, without discomfort, without humiliation, without abuse, man and his wife both naked and not ashamed. That's God's ideal for your marriage. That is God's ideal for your sex life. And to the degree that you and I will stop being selfish in our marriages, this is what's possible for us. This is what our marriages can look like even today. You know, if you've ever been to, if you're married or you've been married and you've ever been to marriage counseling, you know that the favorite thing for a marriage counselor to tell a couple is this. All couples fight. It's just a matter of learning how to fight correctly. And, And as a marriage counselor, I talked with couples that are hurting all the time And they will say, yeah, we went to our counselor and he was teaching us how to fight correctly. If you go to your marriage counselor and he teaches you how to fight correctly, find another marriage counselor. Because the two have become one. How does fighting make sense there? How does it make sense that I would actually try to injure myself? How does it make sense that I would try to take advantage of myself? How does it make sense that fighting would ever be the term that describes the way my wife and I disagree on a topic and then work out that disagreement? Fighting has to do with trying to cause injury, trying to get uh, power over someone, and trying to control someone. None of that is found in a biblical view of marriage. Don't try to fight correctly. It is possible to have a marriage where fighting isn't part of the story. It is possible. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Guys, we need to reclaim this vision for our Christian marriages. Imagine marriages without grudges. Marriages without fear. Marriages without fighting, without manipulation, without shame. Just two people by the grace of God who have become one and who treat each other that way as counterparts made in the image of God. That has always been God's plan for marriage. And if Christ is the center of your marriage, that can be what your marriage is like. I know we're dealing with the flesh. I know we live in a cursed uh, era, but Jesus did come to reverse the curse. So to the degree that we are submitted to Jesus, we are able to love our spouses the way that Christ loved the church. God has an awesome plan for marriage and God has an awesome plan for sex. Sex was God's idea. And frankly, I think it's a top five idea. <laughs> I don't know what you think, but I, I just think it's a heck of an idea. I, it's right up there with like lifting the ban on bacon, I think. <laughs> God came up with this. Listen, guys, all kidding aside, he made everything, human beings, as the, as the cherry on top of all of creation. And he, and he says... What, what can I give them as a wedding gift? Sex. And he creates human sexuality and the parameters for that sexuality and goes, this is gonna help you become one. Don't flush it down the toilet. Don't misuse it. Don't mistreat it. Don't ignore it. Don't put up walls between you and your spouse physically, emotionally, or in any other kind of way. But work on becoming one. Now, I know this has drifted into a message on marriage. Let me just take a second and, and just share a word with single people. Because when we, we read about marriage in Scripture, and the Scripture says a lot about marriage, there's a lot of single people who are hurting because they're not married. They, they'd love to be married. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of married people who wish they were single that's not even meant to be a joke. That's the truth, right? If you're single, here's what the scripture says. First of all, Paul tells us that for some, for a select few, singleness is a gift. And that he has given it to us. God has given it to us so that we will be freed up and not tied down to earthly responsibilities to a family, and then God can use us in ways that he wouldn't be able to use us if we were married. And for some people, singleness has been the thing that has unlocked the freedom of their lives and and allowed them to soar. And if that's the case for you, that's a great thing. Praise God for it. But most people long for that relationship. Most people long for that oneness. For the vast majority of us, we find our completion in a relationship with a spouse. So if you're single, let me just give you a couple words of encouragement. Because you may be 21 and single, or you may be 71 and single. And in either case, singleness is a burden to bear. It's a challenge. And and I want to say to those of you who are single, whatever However long your singleness is going to last, whatever the reality of your singleness, don't sell out during your time of being single. Don't miss out on the opportunity that God intends to take advantage of during your singleness. You have freedoms as a single person that you will never have as a married person. You have opportunities to grow through the pain and difficulty that you're going through right now that you can't go through if he takes you out of that difficulty. Use these days to develop your relationship with God. Let him shape your character so that you will be ready and truly enjoy marriage if God gives it to you at a certain time. So you could be the kind of person that would be a great gift to the spouse that eventually God gives to you. And, and, and I would say to married people, if your marriage doesn't look anything like this precursed marriage, then you need to know that God has a much better plan for your marriage. For your actual current marriage. But it's going to involve you finding your ultimate fulfillment not in your spouse, but in Christ alone. And that as that fulfillment is found in Christ and he is allowed to mold and shape your heart and your character, he prepares you in such a way that he is able now to pour his love through you to your spouse. And what your spouse gets out of that deal is so much better than what you bring to the table on your own. And and so remember this, and I'm not joking around now, remember this when, when, when we have pain and difficulty in our marriages, we tend to think if only my spouse would change, it would be fixed. Listen, you don't need your spouse to change in order for your marriage to be more fulfilling and more pleasing to God. That happens when you change. And, and you will be amazed at what happens when you get the Spirit of God into your heart and you begin living the love of God in your marriage. You're still gonna be married to that same imperfect knucklehead. But you're going to be a different person. And Christ can love you through your spouse, love your spouse through you much better than you can do it on your own. Ask yourself this question. Am I loving my spouse the way Christ loves him or her? Or am I playing this self-protection game where I keep my spouse at a distance and I put up walls and barriers and I say, you will not have access to my heart. You will not have access to my mind. You will not have access to my body. We're gonna keep you at a distance where you're safe because I can't trust you. Listen, you and your spouse have something in common. Neither one of you is trustworthy. You have to trust God either way. So, if we could just begin to say, I'm going to find my fulfillment in Christ and then see what God does to change my marriage as He changes my heart, stop making it about your spouse's need to change. You'll always be frustrated. God can do something in you because He has an amazing plan for your marriage. And don't settle for less than God's plan. God's plan is a shameless relationship. God's plan is a fearless relationship. God's plan is a relationship where two become one and that is a celebration of life. And if that's not true for you, if that's not even close to true for you, here's just a little piece of advice. Counseling is not a dirty word. Don't be afraid of it. Get help. Don't be afraid to let God have his way in your marriage. Don't be afraid to trust God with your sexuality whether that means the way you handle your singleness or the way you handle your married life. Don't turn away from God and His perfect plan for your life when He's using it to shape you so that He can bring you fulfillment. Remember, he custom-designed this whole marriage thing. He custom-designed sexuality for marriage. And he custom-designed you, Psalm 139, when he knits you together in your mother's womb and shows the very number of the days of your life. His plan for you is good. Can you trust him? That's the question. We're gonna talk more about this next week, but for now, whether you're married or single, don't you think it's time to stop doing it your way and start letting God do it his way. He created you for this. He knows how to do it. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we stand before you as people who don't live on that side of the fall. We live on this side of the fall. Um, we see the evidence of the curse all around us and we struggle with our own flesh and we struggle with our own temptations and we've made mistakes that we can't go unmake and there's scar tissue in some of our lives and there's brokenness in some of our relationships. All we can do is look to you, God. All we can do is say, we can't handle this, you can handle this. All we can do is trust you and take you at your word. So help us to do that, God. God, I pray for the pain that is being felt by married people that are in in broken and hurting marriages and are just disappointed by that. I pray for the pain that is being felt by single people who are saying, what's wrong with me? Why isn't there someone for me? What what is God doing? Father, I, I, I pray that you would be with those who have Walk down roads that lead to compromise and pain and brokenness. And I pray for those who are waiting patiently for your best and not settling. God, whatever the case, meet us where we're at. Heal our broken wounds, bind up our hearts, fix our marriages, God. Profoundly impact our families and through that our communities and the whole world. God, help us to trust your plan more than we trust our own ideas. Help us to live in the fear of you rather than in the fear of the dangers that we face. And we'll give you the praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.